but usually like you have you have no idea and you're just sort of surprised that like now your sword is on fire right <laughs> and you have yeah. no idea that like eventually it, it's gonna let you smite you know right yeah eventually it's a holy avenger Dangerous Family Vault in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Yishin. And welcome to episode 343 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about using items that grow in power with your character. But first, the party makes a plan in the Gets Morning campaign. And later, John Brown did nothing wrong in the Character Creation Forge. So sorry for last week. We did skip a week because life uh, gets in the way. Uh, yeah, I believe that's that's how that line goes. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, but we're back uh, and working hard on getting to, to you every single week. All right. So where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in the Shadow Marches, at the Gate of Wind, the party is trying to stop the quarry from unleashing the Chaos of Zoria onto the Material Plane. Xan the Warlock realizes that they've now seen the location of the other gates, in illusory images during their vision, which means it is now possible for them to teleport to those other gates. Unfortunately, Gersi the Mindseed was trapped in that vision too, so she knows their locations as well. Another portal opens and Lauren Davis steps through, a coffin floating behind her. At their confusion, she merely shrugs. It looks like you're more important than I suspected. Warden guesses that she's been watching them through the bloodstone items that she gave them, which she admits. Using one globe of blood, the party retrieved, she sanguinates Decimus and revives him before offering to teleport the party to a destination of their choosing. A safe one, she insists. Uh, was this a contrivance so that Cam could go off to basic training and his character could be out of commission for a while until he got back? Who knows? Does it matter? Now, none of the party can actually cast teleport to travel to the other gates, but they do remember that Ephraim's sister Velina can do so once per day with her greater dragon mark. So they ask Lauren Davis, who of course is Arandis Fall, to take them to Korth so they can try to raise Ephraim from the dead, question him, and then ask his sister Velina to send them on to the gates. The Triant leader, Hender, snaps off one of his own branches and hands it to Bramble so they will be able to teleport back to the Gate of Wind if they ever need to. A moment later, they all appear in the chapel of the House Orion Enclave in Korth. Lauren Davis bids them farewell after suggesting that she might take a trip to Flamekeep. Then she steps into a shadow and is gone. Servants and low-ranked house members are surprised to see them but assume they've returned through normal means. The party returns Ephraim's blood to his sister and explains how to revive him. She is extremely grateful, though she says it will take time to exhume his corpse since she doesn't really want his condition known to the entire house. The party explains that they need to be teleported, and Valina tells them that House Orion has a teleportation circle that will allow her to transport them without moving herself. She'll be able to try the next day when her dragon mark refreshes. In the meantime, they rest and debate which gate to visit first. In the Enclave Library, Lenore pours over maps. On Corvair, 
she spots three places that might harbor enough lava to be the location of the Gate of Fire. A volcano in the Maror Holds called the Fist of Onatar, the Lake of Fire in the Demon Wastes, and the Icehorn Mountains that form the border between the Eldian Reaches and the Demon Wastes, where there are old stories of fiery demons. High plateaus, like the kind they saw at the Gate of Earth, are present in the passes of the Maror Holds and the high peaks of the Greywall Mountains between Droam and Breelin. Given their recent experience with the anti-aberrant metal, the Biesk Mountains between Droam and the Elden Reaches also catch her eye. As for the Gate of Water, nearly anywhere along the coast of the continent could have a high, water-whipped cliff like the one they saw. Hoping to find more Biesk and avoid dealing with any lava, the party decides to try for the Gate of Earth first. The next morning, Valina takes them to the teleportation circle. She explains that since she has not seen their location, there's a chance of a mishap that will harm them before they arrive. They also might appear at the wrong location, in a similar location to their destination or somewhere nearby. She also hands them a scroll of teleportation circle for them to use when they're finished. They accept the risk and she casts the spell. Pain shoots through them as they feel like they are about to be torn apart. It ends as quickly as it begins and they appear high in the mountains, though not on a plateau. The grass is sparse and there are few trees, but to the west, higher peaks loom. To the east, the terrain slopes steeply downward, dropping into a long canyon. Lenore can spot the mouths of many caves dotting its surface. From the temperature and the time of day, Warden guesses they are either in the Biesk Mountains or the Greywall Mountains. Before they can further gain their bearings, they hear a screech from the sky. A massive winged panther dives to attack, and from the other side of a nearby ridge, a hill giant and a minotaur crest the hill and charge. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. And this week, we are talking about legacy items, a topic suggest to us, suggested to us by friend of the show, Snark Knight. Or maybe more accurately, talked about on the Discord. Uh, P.S. You should swing by and uh, partake in all the conversations happening there. And then uh, quickly clamped down on by us so that we could turn it into an episode. <laughs> all right. So legacy items um we talked about this a bit in the intro these are items usually magic items but not necessarily uh that are important to a particular character and then grow in power as that character grows in power right the the rpg the typical uh rpg trope is that your character you know gains levels or experience or or whatever advances and becomes more powerful as you adventure as you continue the story and usually what happens is you have your initial starting gear and then you get rid of it as soon as you possibly can, right? Think about computer games, like computer RPGs. You sell your uh, copper sword so that you can replace it with a bronze sword so that you can replace it with an iron sword, blah, 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 right? But what happens to, you know, the heirloom weapon, the one handed down from your ancestors for generations? Do you, do you sell it for 14 copper pieces so that you can quickly buy a, a sword made of, you know, wood? I mean, yes. I do, but you yes, might not want to. Yes, most games tell you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the wooden sword, you know? It's like it's not worth anything anyway. You're an idiot if you don't do it. You'll die. <laughs> so the purpose of legacy items, um, I mean, the first I'd heard of like the term weapons of legacy uh, was the 3.5 D&D source book, um, is to add plot relevance to these objects that have story relevance to a particular PC, but to, to make them so that, 
you know, both mechanically and in terms of the story that you're telling, they matter and that you don't, you one, don't want to get rid of them, but also don't need to get rid of them. Yeah, I mean, I think it also solves that problem of like the, uh, like the, the, the Christmas tree uh, issue, right? Uh, of like, you have a plus one sword and a plus two sword and a flaming sword and this sword and that sword because you just kind of keep trading up incrementally for, you know, best item that that's available to you. Um, and then no item feels important. Instead, you can you can add some uh, weight to, you know, the one item that is important to you because it grows with you, right? Like it evolves as your character does and continues to meet your needs. All right, so I think there are a few instances where it pays off for either an individual character or for a GM who is trying to add some importance to items in their game to actually use these legacy items. First one is when a player asks you, hey, can my can my stuff matter? Can the, the heirloom stuff I put in my background actually matter? Um, and this is probably is happening when you have a player who either, you know, has had an item like this in a previous campaign or they've heard about these kinds of items from other people who've played in campaigns that include them or they've, you know, been watching some media and they, they've never heard of this before, but they're like, hey, like I breed order of the stick and, you know, Roy Green Hilt has a sword with a green hilt and he keeps it the whole time and it gets stronger with him and he makes it stronger and like he enchants it and stuff like that. And like, is there a way that I could like do a thing like that? Is that okay? Yes. And the answer in those instances should be yes. Yes, you can do that. It's great if, if one person comes up with the idea. The The other thing is that like maybe you want to give a reward to the entire party, right? And the reward for everyone is one of these legacy items, right? It's great if you, you know, you finish that kind of first arc, you get the, um, the walk of the royal... Uh, armory right pick pick the item that you want from the king's uh supplies and any item that they choose will be a legacy item Mm -hmm. and i think these can also often lead into each other right like you know you have four to six people at a at a table and as soon as a legacy item gets introduced or revealed right we'll talk more about that later um but as soon as people recognize that someone else has a legacy item Sometimes you think, well, I would also like a legacy item that both seems cool and powerful. How do I get my hands on one? And the nice thing about this is they're specifically tailored, right? Like we'll talk about mechanics later, but they are specifically tailored to the character because they are important to the character, right? You you don't say, oh, I want to get, you know, a sort of legacy. You say... I have found this amazing shield or I have actually, I've found a shield that I love for some reason. Maybe it is amazing at this level, or maybe it just has some meaning to me. Either I have a history with it or, you know, I, I used it to deal the killing blow against, um, a, a powerful foe when my weapon was destroyed. Right. And now suddenly I've decided, great. In fact, I'm going, I'm going in a shield direction for my character, the whole like two shields thing I've decided. And I really want to keep this shield because it's, it's important to me. I think this also works when you have 
um, items that are like symbols of office or like, you know, symbols of achievement, right? Where, you know, like you're always going to be a member of, you know, the the royal order now right like you've been knighted or whatever like that that isn't going to be taken away from you but all knights have you know this badge or this amulet or whatever right and it's like okay well i can never get another amulet then (laughs) um this this sucks this is a tax right well (laughs) aha that amulet in fact will grow with you (laughs) what amulet were you looking for right yeah and i i like I think one of the reasons that I personally like legacy items, I don't know, spoiler here, uh, I wrote the 3.5 Weapons of Legacy uh, handbook on the old, like, Wizards of the Coast forums, um, is that it doesn't matter how many people have a legacy item, each of those items is different. And even if everyone gets the same badge of office, the powers that they develop should be different because they should be uh, intrinsic or meaningful or relevant to the character that is wielding or carrying them, right? So like we all have the same amulet. Okay, that's cool. Mine lets me scry. So the fighter's amulet shouldn't end up with that power. (laughs) Now we all scry six times a day. Great. Sick. Above the table, it's great because you're not stepping on each other's toes and it doesn't matter how many people have an item of legacy, they're all different. Right. Causes other problems because you've got to make six different items of legacy, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, and then I think the, the third time to do this, and, and you alluded to it earlier, is when a player develops an affinity, right? Uh, or their character develops an affinity for a given item. So you use the shield example of like, oh, the shield is cool, right? I want to keep using this. But like the telltale sign is, um, well... Nothing like I could take something that's like I could go from plus one to plus two, but like this sword means more to me than a plus one. So I'll just keep my sword and get something else. Right. Like, mm-hmm. mm, well, at the point where you've stopped chasing numbers, that's pretty, pretty good sign that that sword is a candidate to become a legacy item. Right. Like every once in a while, there's that moment where, you know, everyone is chatting about like, OK, what loot are we going to take or like what's the next item that I'm going to buy or whatever, right? And you have someone chime in almost like offhandedly being like, uh, you know, this would be the smart choice, but I think I'm just, I really like this thing, right? It would be smart to take the spear, but like, I'm really a sword person. That's the moment when you want to be like, hey, pull up a chair. Let's talk about this sword thing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Describe the sword to me. Right. What does the hilt look like? Tell me about tell me about the metal it's made of. Mm, interesting, interesting. Yeah, uh, in Dark Sun, my soul drinking dagger. You pried out of my cold, dead, straight to hell hands. <laughs> it was it was very specifically for your character. Yes, yeah, yeah. It uh, uh, this provided no value until it provided all its value. All the value. Well, it kind of reminds me of. Um, Lord of the Rings, right? Like Galadriel gives everybody a thing, right? And nobody is ever going to get rid of those things, right? You like hold on to them. And I think if I were playing a Lord of the Rings inspired 
role-playing game where, you know, they're gaining levels with each orc that they kill, then those items probably, you know, offer some sort of passive bonus and then, you know, gain additional powers, right? I mean, obviously in the story, they're they're sort of there for like one specific reason, right? It, it kind of reminds me of... um. What is that? Ewoks battle for Endor where everyone gets like one crappy thing and it has like one uh, very important use in the story mm-hmm. and then never gets used again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about how to do this both at your table and mechanically in terms of like building these things. I think the the reason that maybe a lot of people shy away from doing this is you think that what you really should do is create this item whole cloth a la the the items from uh the wild mount recent D book um that that are like regular normal items actually they're legendary items but they're you know they start off as like pretty normal basic items magic items and then as you like either develop an affinity for them in the game or you know meet some sort of prerequisite or you know like they're often intelligence in some manner um like commune with it in a particular way or something required by the story you awaken it so that it you know sort of goes up in a a tier of power Mm -hmm. and then it goes higher and higher from there these these particular items are in the book and they exist fully written as like hey if you discover if your character discovers this item Here's what it does. And once you awaken it, then it has these abilities. And then once you like are really attuned to it and you've unlocked all of its abilities, then it has these abilities. And that's fine if you're using like one of the six in the book. You know, you could just give one to each of your players and, you know, maybe that fits them really well. But if you're trying to do this custom and make them specifically for individual characters, I probably would not write an entire magic item with like, you know, three times the powers of a normal magic item all the way up to like 20th level with like specific gatekeeping requirements for a story that hasn't been written or told yet. Yeah, I mean, there, there, that's like, that's the trade-off, right? Is like on one hand, uh, the, the player gets excited about what's coming, right? You have that visibility into the future and therefore like, the player is super excited now about what this is going to become, right? Um, but the flip side is, of course, now you've locked in for certain what that item is going to become. If that's no longer relevant to the player, neither is the item. Um, whereas, like, if you leave it more nebulous, um, which I think was more of the Weapons of Legacy way, forgive me for not remembering that book specifically, Um <laughs> But if you if you leave it more nebulous, like you as the GM have more control over um, tuning the item to make sure that it does what the player wants, right? That it stays mm-hmm. exciting and relevant every time it gains new abilities. Yeah, because like the power gamer in me says, yeah, yeah, give me an item where I I as a player know all of its abilities that are that are coming in the future, right? And I can plan around that and. I'm really, I personally am really excited about like the future power of my character. But if I take a step back and think about it from a role-playing perspective, like there's no way that my character knows these things, right? Or, I mean, I guess it's, there's a possibility, like, you know, the wizard tells you, here's, here's what'll happen if you like commune with this thing enough, whatever. Um, But usually like you have, you have no idea and you're just sort of surprised that like now your sword is on fire 
right? <laughs> and you have yeah. no idea that like eventually it it's gonna let you smite, you know? Right. Yeah. Eventually, it's a holy avenger. <laughs> right. Yeah. But also like that's because in the future, future me is a paladin. But like this character right now at level four has no idea that they're gonna be a paladin. I'm a rogue. Right. That that sort of leads into the next way that you can create these items, which would be create them piecemeal or create them from a list of piecemeal options. This this was um, a system that was in the Weapons of Legacy book. There were a bunch of listed items, you know, all written out. Here are the things you're going to get at different levels. But then there was a system of like basically, you know, purchasing on a point system, all kinds of different abilities that an item could have. And you would just pick and choose as a GM or mix and match and be like, one, here are the, here are the things that a new custom item can do and I've, I've created it fully, voila. Or you could be like, once we get to an important point in the story, right? You slay a particular enemy, you have an epiphany about your character, your path or your destiny or whatever, you gain a new ability. And I know that I have this list of abilities that are appropriate for particular levels that either I can choose from or I can talk with a player about the table and they can choose from or we can roll randomly or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. The issue, of course, is getting that list of piecemeal options. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no equivalent system today in 5th edition that will, you know, point those things out. And mm, I'm not even sure that balance is all that big of an issue for it, but, like, roughly weight them equivalently, right? Yeah, I, I, I think I agree that, like, we, we'll t- we can touch on balance a little bit later, but it's probably not the primary concern when, especially when, you know, you're probably only doing this when you have a player who's like really investing in the RP, right? So like part of this is, is a reward. Um, actually, in um, in the original Morning Glory, the only character who ever got a plus three item, like a plus three, it, it was a plus three Holy Avenger, um, was Kallik, Jim's character, the Paladin, who like, paid for it <laughs> with a lot of psychic but, damage for being right. evil <laughs> <laughs> but right getting getting uh i think a fifth level smite worth of psychic damage every time he drew the blade for uh, i don't know four levels but you know that was part of his arc and like he was into it and he again you know he earned it i think this is this is probably something that i would spend a little time and hack together from the magic item section or the feet section or, you know, the, the edges or, or, you know, whatever system you're using from character creation. Like, you know, a lot of systems have like, oh, if you take this flaw for however many points, then you get, you know, this bonus for, for however many points. Right. And that point system lets you pretty easily gauge how strong something is at least according to the game's designers. But that at least means you're guaranteeing that it, whatever you're creating is as balanced as what already exists in the game, right? Um, if you're looking at like 5e D&D, for example, you could look at, you know, individual feats, or you can look at um, there are charms and there are boons and there are epic boons and all of those sorts of things available. And then, you know, individual magic item abilities, you know, an uncommon broom of flying has this ability and an uncommon hat of disguise has this ability, right? And you can kind of be like, all right, I guess the game considers those kind of interchangeable, right? Mm-hmm. 
So you could take those abilities and tack them onto an item. So like I have a sword. Oh, now it's a flaming sword. Okay, well, that's a, what is that, a rare? No. It, it doesn't actually matter, right? It, <laughs> it's still whatever uncommon. it is. <laughs> whatever it is, it's equivalent to that level, right? It's either four points or it's uncommon or rare or whatever. Um, so you can pretty accurately gauge the the power level. And so if you, if like the character has defeated a, an enemy and now their item is going to gain an additional power, you can say, pick one of these four. These are, you know, don't tell them, but like these are all abilities from rare magic items or these are all individual, the, these are all like, the abilities that you get from one feat or you know these are all advances that cost two points a piece or whatever right yeah i mean the other way to do this is to just transform the item right like Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean this this happens a lot where like you know like the best item for a warlock is a rod of the of the pact keeper Right. And so like you hit the point where it's like, okay, well, it was a plus one. Now it needs to be a plus two. Like there's no reason to swap rods. Right. It just manifests as a plus two now. Um, Or or alternatively, right. Once you go from uncommon weapons to rare weapons, like they go from, you know, plus one plus D6 damage to like having an actual ability tied to them as well as being a plus one or plus two. And it's like, okay, well, like which of the items would you like? Well, okay, great. Then your sword becomes that right it grows into that power rather than like cobbling together something new um you just transform it into an item of the appropriate tier that your player is choosing anyway it's just that it's manifesting as the same item right which yeah is the same thing mechanically it's just that it keeps a little bit of the story weight behind this special thing and i like that it removes that sort of like tax that you get a lot of, in a lot of games where you're like, well, do I take flaming or do I take plus two, right? Because those both cost me. Do I take to hit or do I take damage? Because, you know, I can't really get both. And that always sucks, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, picking your pluses always sucks because you're not getting the cool thing. You're just increasing the numbers on your sheet and that's boring. And it can be nice to be like, you get the plus, it's in there. That just happens. All right. Pick the cool thing. What, right. But what cool thing do you want? Um, another thing that you can do here is if you have a player who just absolutely cannot deal with mechanics, right? You can just fix their character for them, <laughs> right? Where, you know, sometimes you'll pick a magic item for a, a character because they're not able to pull their weight because you know they, they weren't they they were built on rp choices as opposed to mechanical choices right yeah like lots of <laughs> lots of games have traps uh and you can just be like you right you can be like you get the plus right this is for you yeah, weird it's a plus two strength sword <laughs> huh that's odd and it get wow you are uh, now qualified for so many different things right <laughs> i'm shocked And then I think the other way you can do this is, you know, if you are confident 
in the system. If you are a player who is confident with your GM and you have enough like trust between you to that they know that you're not trying to game the system, you're really just trying to like build a cool story with a cool item, then you can just kind of choose organically. Either of you can choose organically based on like, hey, this cool thing happened. Do you think maybe it's my sword or my item or whatever could get a new ability? Here's what I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, and you yeah, know like, that? <laughs> you, like you slayed the Gorgon, therefore like the weapon that slayed the Gorgon gives you a bit of its power. Right, like it makes perfect sense for this to be a, you know, a flail of petrification now, right? Or I don't know, unpetrification. Yeah. When I, when <laughs> I whip statues, right? They turn no. into dead hunks of flesh. No, cool. you're immune to petrification now. <laughs> oh, okay, right. I lose my eyes, immune to gaze attacks. Perfect. Right. So definitely some caveats here. A few of you are maybe screaming at us saying, "I tried that and it ruined my campaign." And well, you know, that's um, that's your fault. It's it's a failure on your part, really. I don't know that that's true. I I find it hard to believe. Like in fifth edition, especially, like I find it hard to believe that like one item that like was anywhere close to something in the book, you know, and like wasn't way out of whack for like you know. Oh, I gave a legendary item to a level three character, right? Like apparatus of qualish. Well, maybe that one, but like, if you can, if you can stay like roughly in the parameters, right? Like, I find it very hard to believe that like, it's the item that broke the game. <laughs> Agree, right? Like, there are some caveats here. I think probably the first one that people will say is, okay, but what about power levels, right? In general, it pays to keep each character in the party approximately the same power level so everyone is not only pulling their weight but no one is like outshining someone else typically in combat right but the nice thing is one if everyone has an item then those can all be adjusted specifically for that character and it's actually like a really nice lever to help keep everybody sort of clustered around the same power level Mm -hmm. and if only one person has a legacy item then it should probably just get all or most of the advances that everyone else's items get, right? So everyone else is a Christmas tree. This person just has their one awesome thing. Right. And of course, you know, don't make them lose it. Exactly. And th- and that's the thing, right? Is like everyone else took the, you know, cloak of resistance. There is no reason that the person who really cares about their legacy item, you know, they don't need a cloak of resistance and their staff, Right the staff can just give them the benefit of the cloak of resistance, right? Like it it doesn't matter. You're not going to give them another magic item to attune to. They've got this one. And then, you know, if the person with the legacy item does have a tiny bit of a power boost based on it, well, the whole point is that they're sort of paying for it in RP and the other players are getting to watch a really good story and to interact with a really good story. So in the end, everyone should ultimately be happy. And if they're not happy, then, you know, adjust the power levels because that's one of the really nice benefits about not pre-writing these items. Mm-hmm. Another caveat is to look out for um, who is getting spotlight in the party. Like one of the nice things that you're trying to evoke with these items is more RP, more role play, right? 
hey, let's all spend some time talking about our items, our our heirlooms, you know, the the history behind them, or like, you know, what do they mean to us, and and what do they inspire us to do, and what do I hope for this thing? Like, it it is an object usually, but it represents your story and it is a nice hook not only for the the character who has it right but for also other people in the party right you could easily have an entire party that's rallied around you know Excalibur right like it is Arthur's sword but we follow Arthur because of Excalibur because it's the thing that pointed to him being the king right there's there's also a way you know where you're using this to reward their the spotlight they've already had not mm-hmm. to um give them the opportunity to gain more spotlight with it right so so the the gorgon's flail example right like because you killed the gorgon you got this reward as opposed to you got this reward so that you can get all the spotlight to go kill the gorgon right theseus right <laughs> <laughs> terrible pc um and then we should talk a little bit about character death as well because well (laughs) it's it's a fraught topic to begin with but like you always have the question of what do you do with items after characters die do they get redistributed amongst the group do they die with the character and then their new character comes in with items do they get passed on to the new character etc um you've got to figure that out but now you also have to deal with this you know one item this hyper concentration uh of power that can't be easily distributed amongst the rest of the group um or perhaps can't be passed on to another character or you know you can't create an equivalent item for the new character because it's like ah yes we are you know the five guardians and one of us died and there's this sixth guy who's got an equivalent (laughs) sword and where did he come from? <laughs> like, well, good thing you were here at the right time. <laughs> we had an opening. <laughs> oh, good. I see you've already got the gear. And I think you can tackle these in sort of the same way that you would tackle uh, a spotlight issue, right? Which is, you know, talk about it at the table and, you know, dis- decide things ahead of time with the group. Right. So, you know, it, with Spotlight, for example, if you have a person who is the face, naturally, they usually do most of the talking. Right. And so you have to offer other opportunities for characters to shine. And it's the same thing with a legacy item. Mm-hmm. And when you have a death, sometimes that's actually more Spotlight. Right. Like, okay, right now I can have my maudlin death scene. And not only is my character Jed. But also my item lives on and now like I I still get to exert my will on the party. Mm-hmm. You can easily say that like this item was only special in this particular character's hands, right? It was awakened or communed with by them and the item now goes dormant now that the character is dead. Or it's actually just a plain old stick. It's not, it's not a staff of anything anymore. Um, it was tied to your soul and your soul is gone now. And it's essentially broken. Mm-hmm. Also means that, you know, if you get resurrected or whatever, brought back from the dead somehow, your item is back to. Yep. Um, one thing that I do like uh, is to have the the legacy item become the legacy of the character, right? So the character is 
infused into the item, which of course is passed on to the next character in the party. But it gives the player um, a little bit more continuity. Um, and there's a, you know, there's an element of like our characters advancing or like going on together. Like you're still there in spirit, even if it's a, a new PC has had to join the party. Yeah, I kind of like that idea. I also like the idea sort of tangentially of, yeah, a new character joins the party, but they don't take the legacy item. It's the person who has history with the person who died, right? And so they take the amulet. Or, I mean, it's easier with like an amulet than like a sword or shield or blah, right. blah, right? <laughs> yeah, weapons are tough. <laughs> right. Um, well, that's why it's in, it's uh, concentrated into the jewel on the pommel, and I've turned that into an amulet. Yeah, exactly. Whatever, right? Like, that's perfectly fine, too. I think it's nice to be like, oh, like, we had a relationship, you know, in whatever that meant in that particular campaign. And like this person is dead and to remember them, I will take this thing. And, you know, maybe that means actually a bit of a little power boost because of all the abilities tied to this one item. I mean, maybe this character needs to awaken them as well. And part of that awakening is like a tuning with the spirit of their dead friend. That's, that's a nice arc, mm -hmm. but it could also just be like, you didn't get a choice about these abilities because they were chosen by a different person, but sort of as payment for that, you get a little bit of a power boost and then we even it out as we go along. Right. Uh, yes. That's, that's the, also fine. The wizard, you get the uh, plus two flaming sword that only works yeah. for you and also plus two strength. Have fun hitting on a plus zero. <laughs> okay. But I think I also would, I might play a wizard who's like, I mean, I mean, maybe I'm going to start putting points into strength and yeah. just see what happens. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess the other thing you could do is a nice thing about having an heirloom item a legacy item that belongs to a particular family is that it makes sense when the replacement character is a family member, either because hey, that's what we normally do. And in comes a family member. Here's my like younger sibling. And guess what? They inherit the item and it works for them for just fine because we have the same last name mm -hmm. or the entire reason that my new character shows up is to get the item, right? Cause like we can't leave it with strangers. I mean, you were friends with the person who's dead, but I, you're not my friends. Uh, yeah. Right. And in fact, I'm here to retrieve it and leave. Right. And, you know, now we have a, a nice scene where, you know, you convince me of like why I should join the party. I get, and that is maybe an easier way to ease a character into a party rather than them showing up and be like, you have to take me because the world is ending. Right. <laughs> well, no one else can wield my brother's clan axe. <laughs> like, so... so I guess I'm coming along. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm I'm a wizard, though. <laughs> well, conveniently. Which also is an awesome arc. <laughs> conveniently, uh, next week's Character Creation Forge might solve that problem. Hmm. Hmm. A little multi-classing, perhaps? Hmm. Uh, no problems will be solved, I assure you. <laughs> no, only created. Right. Summoned, maybe. Hmm. So, as we wrap this up, uh, I think we are both very much in favor of introducing legacy items to our campaigns, especially ones that are going to last more than, you know, uh, a handful of sessions. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend like just trying it. And you know what? If it kind of unbalances things for a little while, then just fix it. You know? Uh, it's very, like, low risk, high reward in your games and you know what 
like fiction is full of stories of powerful items popping up and then being important to a character and then them getting lost. So, you know, if this doesn't work for you, great. You know, your dad cuts off your hand and it falls down the reactor shaft and is gone forever. Yeah. Congratulations. You just created an artifact. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come get it next campaign. (laughs) All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Some, I said, echoing in the distance, some kid screaming no in like a really whiny voice. I don't know. It's reverberating through the entire reactor shaft. All right. Well, if we're uh, if we're losing hands and mad at our dads, it can only mean one thing. It's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And enjoy the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building John Brown. Ishan, who is John Brown? Well... If you are not American, or you are uh, like me, grew up in the South and had a curriculum full of lost cause apologia, uh, John Brown is a great American who both wasn't crazy and wasn't evil. Uh, In fact, uh, he was one of the loudest proponents of the abolition of slavery prior to the Civil War. He also died a martyr uh, and was murdered by the state for trying to uh, incite a slave rebellion at the Harpers Ferry Raid in 1859. But I think for this build, we want to dive a little deeper into this historical character because I think probably over the years, I have played maybe like four characters where when asked, okay, you know, tell me, tell everyone about your character. uh, They've been like, oh, they're like, X mixed with John Brown or like John Brown and a little bit of circuit riding preacher or whatever. Right. And I I think what we're going for here is a character that both reflects John Brown, the historical figure, but then also what would he look like in D and D and what is a character who is inspired by the real John Brown and perhaps lives in your game, like the real John Brown and, you know, probably likely dies like the real John Brown. Uh, what do they look like? So what's the build? <laughs> <laughs> it is Zealot Barbarian 14, Devotion Paladin 3, Eloquence Bard 3. So look, I have seen several D&D builds for John Brown. Um, and every single one of them includes Paladin. And I think you have to include Paladin because the most important thing to know about John Brown is that he was wholly and intensely dedicated to the abolition of slavery in the United States. That was basically his only goal in life. In fact, he's, I think, maybe the the only real-life person I know who actually took an oath, like stood up in front of his church and actually swore an oath to end slavery 
in the United States. He didn't add or died trying, but that's how he lived, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And I think most people say, okay, great. Yeah, John Brown, he's the, he was like part of Bleeding Kansas, right? And like, what did he do? Oh, he, he, you know, killed people who owned other people, right? And yes, yes, he did do that. And, you know, got his family members and other people to do that as well mostly toward the end of his life. And I think that sort of leans people toward vengeance paladin. But if we look at the sum total of his life, he dies when he's 59 years old, right? Pretty good run. Pretty good run. Uh, And I think he's like by far the oldest person at the raid on Harper's Ferry, uh, which eventually leads to his capture and then execution at the hands of the state for treason, actually. But the majority of his life, because he started, he became an abolitionist, I guess, officially at like 16 when he entered the seminary, uh, spends most of his time moving to different locations in the United States and setting up businesses, not to start a business and not to try to make any money, but so that he can basically build a barn and help fugitive slaves escape to Canada. And I think it, I think we know of like 2,500 people that over the course of his life, he and his family helped free and, you know, get into Canada or to, at the time, save parts of the United States. But he really becomes radicalized, you know, after the Fugitive Slave Act, when suddenly there is no place in the United States where you can harbor someone who has escaped slavery without now also being a criminal yourself. And I think, I feel like there's nothing more paladin than basically what John Brown and friends did in Kansas, which was roll up and be like, hi, I see you have slaves here. We would like this to not be a slave state. You should free them. And then when that person says, no, I will not, then you kill them. Okay. So where does the barbarian come in? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, so for Paladin, we get Smite and we get the Oath, right? Great. If you want to go 20, 20 Paladin, I think that works perfectly fine. But the reason that I want to take Barbarian here is... John Brown's goal is not specifically to kill slave owners. If that happens, cool. His goal is to free enslaved people and to end slavery in the United States. The problem with Divine Smite is that it only works against creatures. So you can kill a slaver and free an enslaved person but you with divine smite as a paladin you have to do that there isn't it's difficult to use your abilities to actually just free somebody so i like barbarian because the damage bonuses that you get you can use on anything you can smash buildings you can smash manacles uh and manacles specifically uh in the player's handbook have 15 hit points they have a high ac but if you can hit them you can break them and that's all you got to do in the dark of night. Also, as a barbarian, strength-based, uh, it's a DC 20 strength check to break manacles. So, you know, in the dead of night, uh, you just start you start smashing smashing and grabbing, literally. Mm-hmm. Well, you get advantage on it, too, when you're raging. You do, exactly. Uh, so you can deal damage to objects. Uh, Divine Fury lets you do additional radiant damage uh, once around. And Warrior of the Gods, I think, is a nice little bonus here uh, that maybe the real John Brown could have... Uh, used but unfortunately didn't have if you die and magic brings you back to life there is no uh, material component cost which greatly reduces the cost of bringing you back to life to essentially just a spell slot 
and not like, you know, 5,000, 25,000 gold pieces. You also get Fanatical Focus, which lets you reroll a save, and Zealous Presence, uh, which uh, lets you once a day give up to 10 other creatures advantage on attacks and saving throws for a round. And then at level 14, you get Rage Beyond Death, which is, again, here, a, a little bit of, you know, wishful thinking. Um, as long as you are raging, it doesn't matter if you go below zero hit points, you do not die until you stop raging. Well, I mean, they, and then, you know, they did fight a, a whole war about this, like five years later so like, they did you know they I, did indeed could be argued he did he did quite well to rage beyond death right i mean uh he was eulogized by frederick Douglass and harriet tubman uh, who would have been at the raid except that she got ill um and then the song john brown's body right john brown's body lies a moldering in the grave but his soul goes marching on becomes a union standard and then the tune is used to write the battle hymn of the republic but with uh, more acceptable words. Mm -hmm. Now you may ask, why is eloquence barred in here? It's for the same reason that we have zealous presence. It's because John Brown didn't spend his entire life killing slave owners. For most of his life, he's you know working with the Underground Railroad, but he's also basically waving the flag for the abolition movement by fundraising. He's going to Springfield, Massachusetts and talking to rich benefactors in the northern economy and saying, you should give money to the cause, both to me so I can buy guns, but also to the cause of abolition as a whole, right? Give money to Frederick Douglass, who is giving speeches around the country, etc. right? He is a man who inspired other people to take action, partly because they could be like, oh, the action you want me to take is to give money. That's that's great. I Then I don't... I. I'm absolved of the guilt of not taking the action that you are taking, which is putting both your life and your family's life on the line. Uh, two of his sons died in the raid. But from Eloquence Bard, you get the kinds of abilities that you would use when you are fundraising on the circuit. Uh, Silver Tongue gives you a minimum of a 10 on a persuasion check or a deception check. He, I don't think is known for being particularly deceptive, but I think if you work on the Underground Railroad, you need to be able to lie. Sure. And then Unsettling Words uh, lets you use your bardic inspiration to uh, freak someone out enough that uh, they get a penalty to uh, a saving throw. Hmm. Like the saving throw to resist giving money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, yes. Or maybe the saving throw to resist uh, being frightened because, I don't know, if you've seen uh, the mural of him uh, in in Kansas, he's got a gun in one hand, a Bible in the other hand, and a very, very big beard uh, waving in the wind. A beard he grew, by the way, so that people wouldn't recognize him because he was a wanted man for uh, murdering slave owners. I, uh, I have not seen the mural in Kansas. I've been to Kansas, but I had the good grace not to stop. Fair point. And that, my friends, is John Brown. Uh, I also now uh, that I've talked about it, realized that Harriet Tubman is a ranger spy, but I think we'll probably get to that at some other point. Okay. All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our rewards at patreon.com slash total party thrill. And what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are ranking the druid subclasses in our next tier list. And in the character creation forge, we're building the rage mage. 
Well, that's it for episode 343 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.